Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of evil and cruel men. For you have been my hope, O sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From my birth I have relied upon you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become like a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as chief amongst the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. At the eleventh hour, on the eleventh day of the eleventh month, a hundred years ago, the guns fell silent on the Western Front and brought to an end four years of conflict in the Great War, the war to end all wars, In 1918, the 11th of November, was a Monday. And when the news arrived by telegraph, flags were thrown from all the public buildings. Tram drivers stopped. Factories, everybody walked out. Schools were closed for a week. And an unofficial three-day holiday began. These are some of the headlines of the time. And scenes like this were repeated all over the country. The bells of St. Nicholas and St. Mary's rang in celebration. And in Bake Up, a bonfire was built in Stubbley Park. 
and an effigy of the Kaiser was burned on the top. And an enterprising purveyor of potatoes, chips and dried peas in Waterfoot, who was known apparently for his sense of humour, put this notice in his window. When the euphoria of peace had at last died down, there was the realisation that a generation had been lost. Sons, husbands, fathers were missing, never to return. And that has been symbolised today by the missing chairs. Each chair represents a member of this Sunday school, this congregation, that went to war and never returned. They weren't heroes. They were just someone from this church who did their bit and paid the ultimate price. And our graveyard contains memorials to others who died as well. And one example will serve to represent the experiences of many. In the lower graveyard is the grave of Cyrus Alfred Lord and his family. Originally from Dean... In 1914, he and his family were living in Accrington. When war was declared on August the 4th, later that month, Lord Derby suggested to Lord Kitchener at the war office, he of the recruiting post of fame, that men would more willingly enlist in his new army if they could be certain of fighting alongside their friends, neighbours and workmates. And so, across the land, the Pals Battalions were formed. The Mayor of Accrington offers to raise a battalion. His offer is accepted, and within 10 days, 36 officers and 1,076 men from Accrington and the surrounding districts have volunteered. Amongst them is Cyrus Lord's son, Alfred. And so, the 11th Service Battalion of the East Lancashire Regiment is formed, the Accrington Pals. In March 1916, the 11th Battalion is moved from guarding the Suez Canal to be part of the 94th Brigade, preparing for the big push that will begin the defeat of Germany. And so, at 7.30 in the morning... On the 1st of July, 1916, on his 22nd birthday, Corporal Alfred Lord is one of the 720 men of the East Lanks Regiment who go over the top to advance across no man's land. Their objective is to capture the village of Serre. The entry for nine o'clock in the war diary of that day reads, Numbers available for holding the front line tonight, East Lanks Regiment, about 30 all ranks. Corporal Alfred Lord is not amongst them. And his name is one of the 72,000 recorded here on the Thiepval Memorial to the Missing of the Somme a day which began with the hope of victory and which should, according to the commanders at least, have been literally a walk in the park, 
ends as one of the worst days in British military history. And the Battle of the Somme does not end until November 1916. And the effect on Accrington is devastating. It's a town that bore the scars of war. And some say it still carries them to this day. And of course, the end of war does not mean an end to the suffering of families. Take the Waterson family. Percy, Margaret and four children living on Burnley Road East in Whitewell Bottom. Before the war, Percy is the chauffeur for the local GP, Dr Helm. He enlists in the Royal Army Service Corps as a driver. His eldest son, Alan, joins the Manchester Regiment. Alan is posted as missing in 1918. Percy's record shows him to be an exemplary soldier. But he is sent home as unfit for service, suffering from what was called in those days shell shock. He is placed in a succession of military hospitals, finally ending up at Calderstones near Worley. In July of 1919, Margaret's son Alan is finally presumed dead. And it seems to take about 12 months for this to come through to families. And Margaret has to face the future with a husband who has lost the use of his legs and his speech. And Percy passes away at home in January 1920. A family bearing the scars of war. Those are just two examples but their experiences could be repeated in any number of families represented in the list of names which we read out every Remembrance Day. And we remember quite rightly those who died. But we should also think of those who survived. Living with experiences we can only imagine, bearing the scars of war, both physical and mental, to their dying day. There's an elephant in the room, isn't there, at this moment? And the elephant in the room is this. Where was God in all this? And we need to be a bit careful here, because when we say things like, I can't believe in a God who lets this happen, are we really saying, I wouldn't have done it like that, therefore God got it wrong? Now, we can debate this as an academic exercise from the comfort of our present situation. But I think it might be useful to look at what those who were there at the time thought. This is Sir William Dobby. Now, in March 1918, when the Germans, um, with their forces bolstered by troops from the Eastern Front after the capitulation of Russia... They launched their spring offensive. And Sir William is on the staff of the Commander-in-Chief, Sir Douglas Haig. And his responsibility is the distribution of troops. The German objective was to drive a wedge between the British and French forces at the junction of their lines. And their attack met with a huge amount of success. 
and it became apparent that reinforcements were urgently needed if the line was to hold. And Sir William needed to move a division. Now, a division is about 20,000 men, plus their equipment, from the north of the line to the south. And to do that, in those days, they needed trains. Sir William was told by the liaison officer for the railways that no rolling stock was available. And no amount of argument could alter that fact. And Sir William continues the story in his autobiography. He says this. Perhaps he was right. But though arguments cannot change things, yet prayer can. I hung up the receiver and knelt down in my office and laid the matter before God. I said to him, Lord, I have come to the end of my tether. It seems absolutely necessary that we should carry out this move if we are not to lose the war. Please help. I got up from my knees and went on with other work. Shortly afterwards, my telephone rang again, and I heard the voice of the officer to whom I had been speaking. He said, You know that move of which you were speaking to me? Well, the most extraordinary thing has happened. Sufficient rolling stock has suddenly and quite unexpectedly become available, and we can carry out the move as requested. And history tells us that reinforcements arrived in time to halt the German advance. Now, some hundred years from the event, we might be a little bit uncomfortable with this. But even in those days, um, Sir William was aware of these issues. And he said this. I know that the recital of these facts raises many problems and questions. It seems to suggest that God takes sides. Suppose there was some Christian officer on the German side praying that God would enable their armies to break through. I am aware of these difficulties and do not know that I can answer them to the satisfaction of everyone. I can only recount the event as it happened or as it appeared to happen in my sight. God has his own purposes in view and orders events in such a way as to bring them about. And in his providential purpose, it was his will that the Allies should win the war. Perhaps he was reminding us that we needed his help, a fact that we are so apt to forget. Perhaps he desired to strengthen the faith of one of his humble servants and through him the faith of others. Sir William was also convinced that God had a hand in bringing about the end of the war. And he puts this down to the fact that on the 1st of July 1918, a decision was taken by the British government to call the nation to prayer. The date was chosen was the 4th of August, the fourth anniversary of the beginning of the war. 
And again, William Dobby writes that immediately that decision was taken, a remarkable change came over the situation. On the 18th of July, Marshal Fock gained a signal victory over the Germans between the Aisne and the Marne. On the 8th of August, four days after the day appointed to seek God's help, began the Battle of Amiens, the first of a series of brilliant victories, which in a hundred days brought about the downfall of the German army and brought to an end the power of the German nation to continue the war. Now, I don't know whether you agree with that, but Sir William Dobby was under no misunderstandings. He believed that God had his hand on the end of the First World War. Military historians will say that it was due to the fact that the lessons of the war had been learned and the Allies launched a combined all-arms attack, as it's called, where the infantry, tanks, air support and artillery were all combined. And the result was the hundred days which brought the end of the war. I leave that decision to you. But you might say, William Dobby sat with the commander-in-chief. He wasn't actually in the thick of things, was he? This is William Ransley. Now, he was an army scripture reader and worked in a hospital near Boulogne. And he worked there for the whole of the war. And he wrote a diary of his experiences. He's not an official chaplain, but he he supplemented their role, talking to soldiers and reading the Bible with them. Now, you might expect his diary to be full of those who, to use the technical term we Christians use, got converted and committed their lives to following Jesus Christ, along with miraculous answers to prayer. But that's not the case. He gives a very honest account. Some prayers are answered, some are not. But through the pain and suffering, he sees there is a faith that sustains, even though the scars of war remain. He gives the account of a young 19-year-old soldier, seriously wounded and in a great deal of pain. Now this soldier does make a commitment to Christ, and then asks Ransley if it's okay to pray to God to take his pain away. Certainly it is, replies Ransley. But will he, is the lad's next question. And Ransley gives this example. Suppose you have a table that is collapsing under the weight of an object. You can do two things. You can remove the weight or you can strengthen the table. So it is with God. He may take the pain away or he may give you the strength to bear it. Well, that's all well and good, I hear you say. But again, you've given the example of a high-ranking officer and a man whose duty it is to read the Bible to soldiers. That's hardly representative. But, you remember Corporal Alfred Lord? In the archives of Accrington Library is a memorial bookmark produced by his family. It says this, A few more days or years and we, 
shall stand before the throne with thee. Then we shall know the reason why that thou so soon was called to die. All things work together for good to them that love God. The scars of war remain, but there's a faith that sustains. And if you read the role of honour in the free press you get the sense that there are other ordinary people struggling with their grief, but they have a faith that is sustaining them through it. So as the war ends, when you listen to recordings of soldiers who survived, there's a sense of disillusionment. What was it all for? Why was this waste of lives? And the feeling that there just has to be a brighter future after all this suffering. Let's go back to William Ransley. He wrote this at the end of the war. This is what war looks like as it is and as it is felt by those who are taking part in it. Those who have survived the horrors of it can never again regard war as the glorious thing which poets and rulers have represented it to be. The man behind the front, who has escaped the hardships, privations and sufferings and horrors of war, and who therefore is incapable of understanding what it means, may continue to indulge in the sentiment how glorious it is to die for king and country. But the man from the front knows it to be what it really is, a cruel and terrible science which sweeps away by death and destruction in the most devilish manner the flower of the youth of all countries, and the prosperity of many generations. And he goes on to say, It will be heartbreaking if from this stupendous cataclysm of war, no lasting good to the world and to Britain can be brought forth. And this reconstruction is required. This is the city of Epes after the war. And Ransley again says, an essential feature of any real reconstruction must be the recognition of the principles taught by Jesus Christ. Any policy of reconstruction that admits Jesus Christ will end in just talk. And these words have a prophetic ring as the 20th century unfolds. Once again, hope turns to disillusionment. There's the general strike, the depression years, the rise of nationalism and fascism in Europe, the failure of the League of Nations, and the world is once more plunged into war in 1939. But hope turning to disillusionment is nothing new. There's a story in the Bible about a man called Thomas And if you have your Bibles, you could turn with me to John chapter 20. But if you haven't, it doesn't matter because the words will appear on the screen. Now, the background to this is that Thomas 
is one of Jesus's inner circle. He's one of the 12 disciples. And the great hope that they had was that Jesus was the promised Messiah who would free the Jewish nation from Roman rule and bring in an age of peace and prosperity. These hopes were dashed when the authorities arrest Jesus and had him crucified. Their best friend, gone. And the fear that they could meet the same fate. Their whole world had come crashing down. But then three days later, some women come to them and say, they've seen Jesus. He's alive. Jesus then appears to the disciples in the room where they're hiding from the authorities. And we'll pick up the story from verse 24. Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And we've all been there, haven't we? Something exciting's happened. We've missed it. And of course, the disciples, they're full of it. The other disciples say, we've seen the Lord. And it's that you'll never get, you'll never guess what's just happened. And you've missed it. And you're not part of that shared experience. So Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, those are the marks of crucifixion, I will not believe. And you can't blame him. The scars are evidence. And when you're grieving, you're willing to believe anything. Thomas wants to see the scars because the scars are proof that this man that they've seen is really Jesus Christ. So eight days later, eight days, imagine that. Eight days when all except Thomas are full of suppressed excitement of the fact that Jesus is alive. But then Jesus appears. He stands in the midst and says, peace to you. And he probably needed to say that because if you see somebody that's just appeared in the middle of the room and hasn't opened the door to get in, that's quite a comforting thing to say. He then has a word for Thomas. Reach out your finger, look at my hands, Reach your hand here, put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas immediately knows who it is. The scars are the proof. And Thomas's response is to say, My Lord and my God. And Jesus says, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And the writer goes on to say that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. But the ones that are written in this book, and by that he's referring to the Bible, 
He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And the key thing is that bit at the end, believing you might have life through his name. Hope is turned to disillusionment in many, many of us. Life leaves its scars, whether they're the scars of war or just the scars caused by the hand that life deals to us. But as Thomas discovered, and as countless others have discovered too, in the midst of all this, there can be a faith that sustains. 